almost impossible to look back on family road trips without thinking of Cracker Barrel. From the antiques on the wall to the rocking chairs and the rustic gift shop, the iconic chain restaurant taps into our warm, fuzzy feelings of home. Here at Cracker Barrel, we're filled with old-fashioned holiday hospitality. There's just something about gathering folks for a hearty meal and a seat by the fire that warms everyone's spirit. Cracker Barrel. It's not home, but it's close. If the world had a front porch like we did back Cracker Barrels have a distinct sense of place, like going to your grandparents' house. But they also look exactly the same wherever you go. In fact, Cracker Barrel has a warehouse of artifacts that they gather that are the raw ingredients of a Cracker Barrel. And so if a new Cracker Barrel is going to open, you essentially ship all of the the artifacts and the things that are going to make it feel like home. It's kind of a Cracker Barrel in the box. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the paradox of Cracker Barrel. And later, how a space becomes a place. My first guest is Meredith Gregory. Her undergraduate honors project involved looking at countless Yelp photos of Cracker Barrels all over the country. Meredith Gregory is a graduate of the University of Mary Washington and author of The Paradox of Cracker Barrel, a case study on place and placelessness. Meredith, Cracker Barrel is known for chicken fried steak and southern biscuits, not so much academic study. I understand that a trip through West Virginia first sparked your interest in writing about it. Yes, it was It was a trip through West Virginia, but it could have been really a trip through anywhere, as uh, most people are familiar with the Cracker Barrel billboards and spotting the Cracker Barrel buildings pretty much anywhere you go across the country. I believe they're in about 45 states and it's it just feels pervasive as you drive down the highway. So it was it was the trip through through West Virginia and seeing the same thing that I'd seen elsewhere that that sparked the the interest here. You know, my next door neighbors, a little older than me, loved going to Cracker Barrel from Charlottesville and they would sort of make a Sunday thing out of it. They'd go over the mountain to where there was a Cracker Barrel in a city on the other side and loved it. That's awesome. <laughs> There's a lot of people like that that have that just draw to what Cracker Barrel has to offer. Or they don't go in their hometown, but they go whenever they're traveling to name the place, the beach or the mountains or a grandparent or whoever it may be. That's really the intent of Cracker Barrel. If you read some of the literature on their website, from the very beginning, this was it wasn't a you know happenstance that they exist on the highways and it's not a happenstance that they want to create this sense of place and home and familiarity. As the highways were expanding, that was their business model. Where was the first one? It was in Lebanon, Tennessee. And was it sort of a genuine general store that looked like the later Cracker Barrels that dot the country now? It was very similar. It's a brown building like they still are with that very traditional big tall front to a building, kind of the false front. It says country store across the front. And that's really how they got started with this idea of we want it to be a general store type restaurant place where people could stop midway on a travel. And they were looking for something that was consistent and familiar, uh, which is typically what how people describe a sense of home and a place that they're very comfortable. And so they, they wanted to draw people in that way. On the few occasions you've eaten there, you have some favorite dishes or biscuits among them? I like their biscuits. In fact, I brought biscuits to uh, my defense when I first defended this. This was my college thesis. <laughs> and uh, so I brought biscuits there, but pan- their pancakes, I have to say, are my, some of my favorite. Walk me through a layout and feel of a typical Cracker Barrel restaurant and how it creates that distinct sense of place. Yeah, so Cracker Barrel start with having the same type of building. The whole outside design is the same. You walk up to the front porch, there's rocking chairs. You have a barrel with a checkerboard most of the time. And you always walk into the general store portion. And they like to have your old-fashioned candies and your old-fashioned sodas and little knickknacks and CDs and things like that. Uh, and then you, so you have to walk through 
through their general store area and you get to the restaurant itself and then you walk back. There's always a fireplace. You always have a a taxidermy deer head somewhere and a rifle over the fireplace. A lot of artifacts that evoke that early 1900s time period on the walls. It's always the same. They have the same little peg game on every table. Same thing no matter where you go. And what do you think it is that fans of Cracker Barrel and their legions of them love about it? I think it is that sense of home that it evokes, and they do a very good job of understanding what home and this experience of the early 1900s and what kind of going home to your grandparents might have felt like. You'll see snowshoes on the walls of an Arizona Cracker Barrel, and somebody from somewhere up north is going to have had snowshoes on the wall or understands what that means, and it was very commonplace. And so they'll feel more at home as they're transiting through Arizona. And so you see artifacts like that that transfer from place to place to place. So they don't try to make it, like, feel like Maine or feel like Not Arizona. at all. It feels like the same place wherever that is. It feels like the same place no matter where it is exactly. And it feels like a Cracker Barrel. There's really no no better way to describe it. As I, As I was doing my research, my methodology was to... I took every state where there was a Cracker Barrel, I randomly selected one specific store per state, and then I pulled every Yelp photo that I could for that particular Mm -hmm. store and then did an analysis of what was in each Cracker Barrel. And there are really two things that drive the more placefulness of geography, the, the piece of it where you can tell where that Cracker Barrel is physically located. And the first one is any local sports team. So if it's a Cracker Barrel in Charlottesville near UVA, you'll potentially, it's not a guarantee, potentially see a bunch of UVA, you know, maybe some t-shirts or some jerseys or something like that. So that's one way you could tell generally where a Cracker Barrel might be located. And then the vegetation outside is the other one. Arizona, you'll see some cactuses or some palm trees or something that you wouldn't see in, say, Maine. Other than that, it Cracker barrels feel like Cracker Barrel across the country. It's so interesting because your whole point is that Cracker Barrel is immensely popular with its fans, and it does that by creating a sense, a distinct sense of place. And yet, the idea that they're all almost identical makes it feel like it's placeless. Correct. You can go to the same Cracker Barrel, essentially, no matter where you are in the country, and it, it exists over and over as almost an exact replica. In fact, Cracker Barrel has a warehouse of artifacts that they they gather that are the, the raw ingredients of a Cracker Barrel. And so if a new Cracker Barrel is going to open, uh, you essentially ship all of the, the artifacts and the things that are going to make it feel like home. You get a big shipment of those and put them all on the wall, and that's your Cracker Barrel. It's kind of a Cracker Barrel in the box. It feels a little bit like you know any other strip mall or any other McDonald's even, you know, you don't have that same sense of place with a McDonald's, but there's really not much other than the theme that Cracker Barrel has put around their store that's different than something like a McDonald's. Does it make you feel sad? It does. Yeah. I uh, I was interested in the research in the first place with this idea of placelessness being so pervasive across. I think it's worse in the, in the United States than in other countries, but every store in a strip mall is the same. And I know exactly what I can get from each one just by the sheer popularity of each store. You know, a target is a target is a target. And you can find them everywhere. Same thing with a Cracker Barrel. But those those little gems of a place now that are unique and they're interesting and you want to interact with the environment, I think are becoming harder and harder to find. I don't think we're building and developing out places that are like that anymore. So what we have is, I think, what we're going to have until we force the issue a little bit more and create a market for those more interesting places and environments to exist. You know, when I was in college and I would meet up with my brother and we'd go out someplace to eat, he would refuse to partake in it if he found out the place was a chain. He was really against chains. But yeah, chains are a huge part of how restaurants happen in America, right? Absolutely. There's a, a really interesting article if anyone wants to go do a little homework and reading. It's called The McDonaldization of Society. And it highlights, it's not just necessarily the fast food chain or the fast food restaurants and the chains that exist across that industry, but industries at large 
And it highlights the the focus on efficiency, calculability, control, and predictability, as those are four things that create a very efficient business. And so, you know, from a business perspective or from um, business owners, that's great. Someone, you know, oh, I want, I'm really craving pancakes. Let's stop by Cracker Barrel. I know they're going to have them and I know exactly what they're going to taste like. So let's stop there. And that drives a large market of people to your your establishment, but it definitely results in this placelessness that I describe uh, in my work. But I don't feel like Americans are any different than Europeans or people in other parts of the world who really love unique hideaways and excellent businesses that are um, stand out all on their own. It's not that we crave chain per se, but yeah, we appreciate knowing, hey, if I pull off the road, I can grab a quick McDonald's. I think it's probably something else that's driving this. Maybe it's capitalism, right? It certainly could be. I, th- I think that you're right in that Americans are interested in this unique environment. But a lot of times, if if you don't have time to experience a place and you just want to move through it quickly, I think that there's a a growing demand for something that becomes a very placeless place. And from a what we crave, a good example that it, it came out of this McDonaldization of society paper that I would never have thought was in the same category as, you know, a chain restaurant is something like a cookbook. You know, I love homemade pizza. I love lasagna, whatever, you know, name your, your favorite dish. And most likely you have a recipe for that. And that recipe is designed in the same underlying forces that is inspiring a chain restaurant or a chain clothing store, et cetera, is that search for efficiency, for control, predicting exactly what it's going to come out tasting like in this case. I think it's even more than just, you know, what does our physical landscape look like? And if it's just really capitalism or business that's driving that, it's it's a little bit less adventurous when you really start breaking down kind of the underlying reasons behind some of what we're talking about. Sometimes I wonder, though, if if we have a demand for sameness and a demand for Walmart, CVS, Cracker Barrel, McDonald's, mm-hmm. et cetera, I don't know that we're so much demanding chains as willing to go there once they show up. Are we to blame for going there once they show up? <laughs> you know That's what a I good mean? question. I mean, we have we have choices. I I went to school in Fredericksburg, and you have it's a it's an interesting dichotomy in Fredericksburg. You've got the downtown strip there, right by the water. It's the old historic part of town. Every restaurant is a unique restaurant for the location. Some There's a couple yes. chains mixed in there, but you don't see your big chain names throughout. And it's a very interesting, it's a fun place. People linger in those places. And then just up the street, you have what's called Central Park. And it's every chain that you can ever imagine located right there on the side of the highway. There is a Cracker Barrel there. And so just from a personal experience of living there and experiencing that environment, when I have time on my hands or when I'm not looking for something very specific or I'm looking for something unique, I'll go downtown, go window shopping, you go through the antique stores. And it's one of those, you never know what you're going to find. And that's fun. But if I need, I don't know, if I need a... An electric blanket. An electric blanket or I need carrots for a recipe, I'm not going to go downtown for that because I don't know that that's going to be there. I don't know where I'm going to find it. And so I think there's... a potentially a place for both environments to exist. But if we want to move away from the chains, we'll have to recognize that we can't necessarily predict and have that guaranteed experience of, I know exactly where I can find that electric blanket or whatever it's going to be. You'll have to settle for a different brand than you were expecting or not finding one this week and being okay with that. How are you spending the holidays this year? I'm spending the holidays with my family. Uh, We're from down in Richmond. And so we'll just hang out and enjoy being together. And hitting the chains? Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) As best we can avoid. Oh, that's great. Well, (laughs) Meredith Gregory, thank you so much for talking with me and with good reason. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Meredith Gregory is a graduate of the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg and the author of The Paradox of Cracker Barrel, 
case study on place and placelessness. Two and a half years ago, my next guest and his family moved into a new home, a seemingly ordinary life event, but his new digs also happened to come with 600 college students. The building on the campus of Virginia Tech is called the Creativity and Innovation District, and it was intentionally built to foster community. Tim Baird is a geography professor at Virginia Tech, and he's using the building to study how a space becomes a place. Tim, two years ago, you and your family moved into a dorm with basically 600 teenagers, 600 Virginia Tech students in this brand new building on campus. Why did you do that? (laughs) All of my colleagues ask the same question. Uh, The university has reasons that they put faculty in, in buildings, and those reasons are about supporting students' development, especially outside of the classroom, and finding ways to connect their lives inside the classroom with their lives outside the classroom. But for our family, it just seemed like an experience that you couldn't have any other way. How do you live there? You don't live in a dorm, and you don't live in a suite. What do you live in? Right. So uh, in this building, there's a, a faculty apartment And it's uh, quite comfortable. It's actually a little bigger than the house that we moved out of. We have a lovely kitchen, dining, living space that's that's quite large, and it's meant to facilitate gatherings of, you know, several dozen people in the space. Colleagues, you know, have asked a lot of questions about these details, like, are you showering in the same spaces where the students (laughs) are, like, waiting outside the shower and the... With your towel and your soap? Uh, no, we have our own <laughs> bathrooms in our apartment. <laughs> well, so before we go deeper, help me understand what this building is. This is a brand new building, very modern, architecturally beautiful, and kitted out to be sort of state-of-the-art mini-college on the Virginia Tech campus. That's right. So this is the this is the result of years of thinking and planning and strategizing about how to push the envelope in higher education, especially as it relates to residential life. It's unique in the United States in bringing together the types of space that it does. So under one roof, we have about 600 students who live But the building also has like really excellent academic space in the form of a a large makerspace. There's a giant rehearsal and performance space. We have two teaching studios for the School of Visual Arts. So it's a real novel assemblage of space. And and then they tried to marry that with a novel assemblage of people. So we have three different living learning communities. These are thematic-based living communities that students opt into. One is focused on living the arts. One is focused on kind of architecture and design and global challenges. And the third is focused on entrepreneurship. And then we've got faculty who teach in this building, faculty who live in this building. And it feels like a neighborhood. I mean, honestly. I think it's interesting. One of the things that was done to help foster community in this huge, innovative building was shave down the size of rooms, but increase the size of hallways where people pass and connect with each other, right? Sure, that's right. They didn't want to make small rooms. Students need their own private space. But are there ways that we can organize space to maximize shared space? And one of the ways that we have done that is through lounges for each of the living learning communities. It's just like a a big living room, kind of with couches and ping pong tables and televisions. And there's events, they have movie nights, there can be talks or lectures that are given in that space. But it's really a hangout space for students in that living learning community. But one of the things they also did was try to maximize the size of hallways. Hallways are these great understated spaces where people move and they pause And those two things together, especially the pause, pause is when we start to make meaning and establish culture and establish place 
is when we pause. And when you think about college, some of the great moments of a young person's life in college are when you are sitting around with hallmates or floormates and discussing, uh, let's say, matters of consequence. And hallways are great spaces for that. So there was extra care and attention made throughout the building to leverage the value of hallways. So you are the lead researcher in a three-year project using this new building to understand how a space becomes a place. What's the difference between space and place, right? Sure. I think the best description I can offer is that when we build a house, it's just wood and glass and concrete. It's not a home yet. It becomes a home when people move into it and have birthdays and have holidays and have drama and have the seasons go by. Then it becomes deeply meaningful and, and we could call that a place. This is the same here. It's a, it's a building. It was glass and steel and concrete. And all of our job, the people who work and live in this space, our job, our vision is for this to become a really meaningful place. You know, in some ways, it seems like you've made a small, self-contained college there. And it's a little like Hogwarts and you're a Dumbledore or dean of students at this small place, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, bless you, Sarah. Bless you. This, If I was to be compared to anybody from Harry Potter... Dumbledore would do. Um, <laughs> I, when I was young, so I'm 46, and when I was in college, I went to a small school where uh, faculty knew students. All my professors knew my name in class. All the classes were small. But students didn't uh, live with faculty. I suspect that today's students may be more open to this idea of faculty living with students because of the Harry Potter books. You know, I've read those books to my children, and Dumbledore was just unfailingly patient with his colleagues, with, I mean, even with Tom Riddle, even with Voldemort. And I <laughs> feel like that there's a great lesson in those stories for me as a figurehead in this space that every ounce of patience that I can muster I should. I should endeavor to do so. You know, young people are practicing adulthood right now. They're away from home for the first time. We're trying to get them to be members of this new home. And we're asking them to be thoughtful members of this new community. And, you know, they're practicing. And they make mistakes. And they are not always as thoughtful as maybe they could be. But that's a learning opportunity. My job as an educator is so much more important than any role that I could take on as a disciplinarian. You know, when one of my daughters went off to college, she said something that floored me, and it was so small. She said, I miss grown-ups. And ah. she didn't elaborate on that, but I came to believe that what she missed was people who who loved her, that she loved, who knew her and could see her, you know, truly yeah. see her. And instead, you're one of a gazillion 18-year-olds crowding through halls, stumbling to class, right? That's a beautiful idea. I yeah. don't know that I have heard a student say it so simply. So another vision for spaces like this is that they are multi-generational. So we have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. And then, of course, my wife and I are in our 40s, and a lot of the students, you know, they're 18 or 19 or 20. Some of them gravitate towards the children, and I love to yeah. see that. We have uh, students who have engaged our son directly in making uh, stop-motion Lego animations. We have some students who have engaged our daughter, uh, our youngest, directly in crocheting. And our little 10-year-old daughter will just like go up to the sixth floor and hang out with college students for a couple of hours crocheting. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. Some of them, um, you know, understandably are more interested in my wife and her perspective or, the, or in me. So I think that your, your daughter's observation is an excellent one. And... Um, I hope that this, uh, the students who live in this building with us feel 
that absence less in their college experience. You've said something that you noticed about people that we do seem to be wired to be sort of in a group or a tribe in tension with other tribes, and that mm. a lot of times college or professional sports sort of plays out that tension in a good way. But what are you seeing close up among students? Do you see grouping, tribes? Absolutely. You know, humans became humans on the savanna and where being in a group conferred a great advantage. You know, loners who were walking around in the savanna trying to get food and shelter, uh, they didn't last very long and their genes weren't passed forward. But people who were wired to be social joined groups, had better success finding food and shelter and, and obviously procreating. And this is why humans are social creatures, but we're not infinitely social. We're not wired to be social at the scale of the entire planet, let's say. We are wired to be in a group and to be in competition with other groups. And in that idea, you can find the seeds of all kinds of human phenomena, social phenomena. One is, uh, you know, our love of, of hating the Red Sox or the Yankees or the Patriots or something like that and rooting for our own team. And in those situations, that kind of competition can be, it can be friendly, it can be, um, you know, it can be benign, but it doesn't need to be harmful. And then we can see other things in the world where humans are competing and it, and it is, it's violent and it's painful and it's hurtful. We can even see some of this in our political environment. Our goal shouldn't be to eradicate groups, you know, we should encourage people to seek out the groups that help them to feel comfortable, help them to pe feel powerful. And also, and also, this is a yes and, to be curious and open-minded about the groups that they don't choose to belong to. I think just to be mindful, to be intentional when thinking about other groups, as opposed to reactive and reactionary, we could do a better job teaching courses on this, teaching courses about curiosity. I don't know that we do, but we should. I think that that's a skill that you can practice and get better at, being curious across difference. And I hope that in this building um, that we're working in that direction. I love that. Tim Baird, thank you. I hope you and your family and your 600 housemates have a wonderful holiday. Thank you, Sarah. It's my pleasure. Happy holidays. Tim Baird is a geography professor at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In the 1500s, Spain and Portugal saw the New World as an enticing space to extend their empires and generate wealth. But they had no clue what was actually out there. My next guest says Spain's vision for the New World had North America connected to East Asia. Ricardo Padron is a professor of Spanish at the University of Virginia and the author of The Indies of the Setting Sun, How Early Modern Spain Mapped the Far East as the Trans-Pacific West. You know, Ricardo, in grade school, we all learned that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Why was Spain interested in expanding their empire into the New World at that time? What was going on back home? Well, what was going on back home was basically the space race of the time. Portugal and Spain were both looking to get independent access to the wealth of the Indies. The trade with the Indies was controlled by other people. And there was a lot of money to be made by getting this kind of direct access. And it, it wasn't just Columbus who thought this. Other people thought that the distance from Spain to China across the ocean was workable, that you could actually cross it without, you know, dying of thirst and hunger along the way. So this was the objective, to try to reach the Indies and the fabulous wealth. In your book, you say the Spanish called the New World Las Indias. Why Las Indias? Where does that name come from? Las Indias, or the Indies, is the word that medieval geography, both Christian and Muslim, used to talk about the whole world, say, from the island of Madagascar all through the Indian Ocean out to the South China Sea. So basically, the Indian Ocean, Southeast Asia— 
And what had happened by Columbus's time was people were realizing that this region could be reached either by going around Africa or by crossing what we call the Atlantic. When they stumbled across the Americas, they believed that they were still in the Indies. So this is the big question. You know, we we learned that Columbus was sailing to the Indies but discovered the New World. In his time, what a lot of people thought was that he had discovered a new part of the Indies, that that's what the New World was. It was actually this undiscovered or previously unknown part of Asia. And that meant that you were going to find gold there. You were going to find spices there. You were going to find people that because they were from the tropics were sort of inferior in ways that were exploitable and, you know, and colonizable. You know, they were available for that. And why did Spain believe this land, Las Indias, belonged to them? Well, what had happened was Columbus's voyage triggered this territorial dispute between Portugal, and it was settled by the Pope, and it just so happened that the Pope was a Spaniard. And so what he did was he drew a line from north to south in the Atlantic, dividing the world in two between Portugal and Spain. Everything east of that line was supposed to be Portuguese. Everything west of that line was supposed to be Spanish. In other words, they thought that the pope had the power to do this, that because of his position as head of a church that was supposed to be universal, he could grant sovereignty to lands that were either uninhabited or inhabited by people who were not Christian. And yet they were dividing a world that nobody had fully mapped out yet. They didn't know what it looked like. Exactly. And one of the things that nobody knew was what happened when you took that line and you stretched it so it went to the other side of the world. So if you imagine this line going through Atlantic, cutting through the Pacific on the other side, where does it fall? Does it cut through Asia? Does it cut through water? Where are places like China, Japan, Indonesia, all of these places that were associated with wealth that were the real targets of European expansion? You could draw maps that claimed to be scientific that kind of put it both ways. So the Portuguese drew maps that put all of these rich territories on their side of the line. The Spanish drew maps that put all these territories on their side of the line. And there was no way that that dispute could be scientifically mediated. You know, there wasn't agreed upon data. And so everyone could advance their claims on their basis of the scientific maps and decide the issue politically. I'm fascinated that around the same time Columbus finds America, or what he thought was the Indies, the Spaniards also reach Beijing in China. And it's not something we usually hear about or know about. What was going on with the effort to push to Beijing? Well, the Portuguese got there first. They got into the Indian Ocean, and from there they got to China. And so the first Portuguese embassy arrives in Beijing at around the same time that Hernán Cortés arrived in Mexico. So the Spanish encounter with the Aztecs is taking place at the same time that the Portuguese are encountering the Chinese. What happens is eventually the Spanish make the leap across the Pacific. They establish a colony in the Philippine Islands, and there's this 30-year period when then people think that history is going to repeat itself, that just as the Spanish conquered the Aztecs and the Incas, now they're going to conquer the Chinese. And it all hinges on thinking about the Chinese as another version of the Aztec Empire or the Inca Empire that had like this inherent fragility that could easily be split open so that you could recruit allies against the emperor, that sort of thing. But of course, it turns out that the Chinese are actually much more united politically, much more powerful economically. And as the Spaniards start to learn more about Chinese realities, it becomes clear that this isn't going to happen. Why couldn't they see the New World as separate from East Asia early on? Did they think the New World was literally connected to Asia? Yes, they did. The idea that won out around the 1520s when Hernán Cortés was in Mexico was that the two places were connected. And one of the reasons they did that actually had to do with the conquest of Mexico. Because until they reached Mexico, the Spanish had not encountered urbanized civilizations, urbanized people. And so Hernán Cortés sent these letters back in which he described the city of Tenochtitlán with its huge population, its enormous marketplaces, its elaborate architecture. And there were people who saw in that the same kind of places 
that Marco Polo had described when he visited China years earlier. And so, for example, there's a German geographer who says the city discovered by Hernán Cortés is the exact same city, Chinese city, described by Marco Polo. Oh, my God. So, in other words, the discovery of the Aztecs, for some people, for a while, confirmed the idea that they were getting close to China. In this early vision by Spain, you could walk from Mexico to China. That's correct. In other words, when people said America or the New World, they were talking about South America. North America was thought to be an extension of Asia. And so the whole question was, when you were in Mexico, how close were you to China? And some people mapped China very close by, the idea, you know, maybe 10 degrees of longitude away. And of course, over the course of the century, as the Spanish begin to explore what we know as the southwestern United States, and they fail to find China or anything that looks like China, they also fail to find things like elephants or rhinoceroses, you know, these kinds of animals that are very much associated with China. Instead, they find bison. These kinds of discoveries begin to suggest that North America may actually be something different, you know, that it may actually be part of the new world rather than part of Asia. At what point did they decide it was different? Um, It's somewhere between, say, the 1540s and the 1570s. In the 1540s is when these explorations take place in the Southwest, which disappoint everyone's expectations. By the 1570s, you see the production of these printed maps that depict the New World, the entire New World, North and South America, as a separate continent. And that's when the idea really comes together. But you have to remember that the Spanish are still drawing that line around the world. And according to them, that line cuts through Asia and it gives them China, Japan, Indonesia, Korea, all of that is on the Spanish side of the line. So even though the Spanish are starting to understand that America is a different continent, they're no longer thinking of this like one continuous Indian expanse, they're still thinking that East and Southeast Asia belongs to them. So what happens is over the course of time, so first they think of America as part of Asia. As the century goes on, they start thinking about Asia as a frontier of their American empire. In other words, where do you go next? After you've conquered Mexico and Peru, you go to China. What's the point of looking at this now? What do we learn from studying the way Spain imagined the world wrongly initially in the 1500s? That vision was wrong. It failed. When we try to imagine the world the way the Spaniards did, in which the Pacific does not separate America from Asia, but rather unites them, what that forces us to do is to rethink the way we look at the world. Because when we look at a map of the world, you know, most of us, we see the Atlantic at the middle and the Pacific is consigned to the margins. And that centering of the Atlantic has to do with a long history of political, economic, and cultural relationships between Europe, the Americas, and Africa. What this story does is it teaches us to think about a Pacific-centered world. And it tells us that there were people, the Spanish, who were thinking in Pacific-centered terms in the 16th and even into the 17th century. And this is actually a precursor to what is happening in the world today. In other words, today the world is changing. We are moving into a Pacific-centered world in which America's trans-Pacific relationship with China is just as important, if not more so, than its transatlantic relationship with Europe. And what this story is about, this is the deep history of the Pacific-centered world and one of the moments when uh, a particular country, a particular empire, tried to construct a trans-Pacific world or a Pacific-centered world and, you know, for a variety of reasons, failed. But it does teach us, I think, to turn the globe around and think of how the world might look different when we put the Pacific in the middle rather than the Atlantic. Ricardo Padron, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure. Ricardo Padron is a professor of Spanish at the University of Virginia and the author of The Indies of the Setting Sun, How Early Modern Spain Mapped the Far East as the Trans-Pacific West.
When she was a kid, Joanna Eleutheria moved from New York City to her father's homeland in Cyprus, a majority Greek-speaking island in the Mediterranean. Her book, This Way Back, is a collection of essays that chronicles that journey, along with her search for the meaning of home. Joanna Eleutheria is an English professor at Christopher Newport University. Joanna, what led to your journey from New York City to your father's homeland in Cyprus? My father missed his home. His first wife passed away when they were both in their 20s. My father longed to go back somewhere where the great tragedy of his life, his great traumatic loss, didn't exist. The loss didn't exist and hadn't happened. And that was his childhood home. And he took his second wife, me and my brother, back to Cyprus, hoping that it would be a place where bad things didn't happen. How old were you when you arrived? Almost 10 years old. What do you remember? What sort of community did you land in? Um, One of my childhood memories is that the neighbor was like, I see you playing with your dolls. And I was like freaked out because in the U.S. that would be a violation to talk about seeing somebody through their window. But boundaries are much more fluid in a communal society like that. People give gifts much more sort of frequently, a lot of sharing, and it's a lot more communal. That was a big difference. Crime? No. We never locked our doors. There was no crime that I had ever heard of. And very little immigration, a lot of homogeneity. Yes, yes. So my school was English-speaking, but full of kids of Greek Cypriot descent whose parents had left after the invasion in 74 and in the eight, sometime in the 80s or early 90s returned to Cyprus with English-speaking kids. For the most part, your childhood there was sort of idyllic and natural. Yes, I could walk all through the fields. There wasn't really a sense that you were trespassing on somebody else's property. It kind of didn't occur to me that I needed to get permission to walk on somebody else's land because everybody in my village knew each other. Everybody knew, people knew my grandfather and would tell me stories about my grandfather. Everybody knew who I was and there was no sense that it would be a problem to walk on land that wasn't mine. So I just wander in the hills. In the book, you also talk about coming out as gay. Did that happen in Cyprus? No. I realized it when I came back to the U.S. for my master's degree. And you were in Cyprus from age 10 to 26. Yeah, except for college. So not as a teenager, not as a young adult. No. Do you think you now realize what you were feeling was that? Oh, 100%. It was very obvious. It was obvious to my friends. My teenage friends said, oh, yeah, if you weren't so religious, you would obviously be a lesbian because I was in love with lots of my friends and my teachers. Yeah, I was madly in love with several girls. And I just didn't have a sense that that was sexual or romantic. I just assumed that I was very spiritual and that's why I didn't like boys. Are you still spiritual? Mm, I'm a little less. It's sort of like there was a disenchantment with the Greek Orthodox Church because of its rigidity, because I came out to a priest in confession and he said, it's not a sin to be attracted to women as long as you don't act on it. Being gay is kind of like having a club foot. Somebody who has a club foot can't run and somebody who's gay can't have a relationship and it's it's okay. Oh, that must have hurt so much. Yeah. There's a wonderful essay at the end of your book, Moonlight Elegy, where a lot of your relationship with your father and an understanding of who he is and where he's from really comes out. Would you read that, please? Yeah. I wrote this before he passed away, and so it expresses some of the anticipatory grief that I didn't feel permission to feel even when he's still alive. It feels like an insult to say that you're grieving someone who's still alive. Moonlight Elegy. In the village of Asgata, I used to run up in his mountains for an hour before dark. On days when the law prohibits hunters from shooting at the thrush and rabbits, I go out into the hills and run alone. 
Around and around itself a mountain takes you, up to its spine, a ridge of dips and peaks. And you can see the other side, the city spreading out toward water. On moonlit nights, you can see the footprints of God scintillating on the sea. When I used to return each evening, he would ask me, Did you see the moon? As if anybody could miss the moon that showers light into a sky just turning navy. I stare a little at the moon before rounding that last bend before the house. But I would always ask him where it was, and he would point. And I would crane my neck and look because the raising of his weakened arm was his gift. As a father ages, a daughter learns how badly he wants to go on as before, though his children aren't children and nothing is as before. I live in an American city now, and night is only night, black patches of sky, dark trees turned yellow in electric light. No one sees the stripe of the galaxy, no one sees stars. My father's home is wounded by politics and drought. Our village draws water from its own underground vein, which is shared among many farmers and therefore weak by day. My father waters the apple trees, jasmine, and bougainvillea every night after sunset and every morning before dawn. He holds the hose over little moats around every tree and waits for each to fill. He forms a small sea around the roses, careful not to expose any roots. A hedge of rose laurel divides our land from the neighbors, and bright pink flowers bloom across the way. When I return all sweaty from the hills, my father points to a moon just cresting over the horizon. It is red like blood, and I sometimes feel that he is pointing to a place of violence and torment that lives beyond our hills. When I run, I listen, half expecting to hear a wail, some sort of lament. Did your father ever tell you, I love you? No. The closest he could say was, I'm proud of you. The reason I ask is because you write about the complexity of your passions around yeah. him, right? And you have an essay that many people, I think, would appreciate called Unsent Letter to My Father, where you grapple with love and forgiveness. Would you find that and read a portion of that beginning with, Dad, I would love to have loved young. My father... I did everything you asked. I left New York with you, and while my mother, you said, didn't even try. I learned to love your land. I learned its history by heart. Since kindergarten, I brought home grades to make you proud, and every year I won so many prizes that a shelf filled up, and we had to clear another one for all the plaques. Best in math and best in chemistry and physics and in literature. And I ran, trained six days a week around and around the red rubber track in the Cypriot sun so that you could tell even people you didn't know. My daughter is an athlete. My high school basketball team never won any games, but I made sure your daughter was its captain and the best. At school parades, I held the flag and gave the speeches. After that, I brought home a good degree with more honors on it than any of my cousins had. Now that I have completed these, the things you asked of me, I want to know, I want to find a way to ask if any of those efforts and achievements matter. Or if, after all, all that matters is this one last thing you asked of me yesterday. Because, although I learned to honor you with prizes, I'm not sure I can find a man and marry quick enough to give you peace. I want to know two things. I want to know if you will love me even if I fail to give you a grandchild. And second, I want to know how hard I should try to turn what I am into what you want me to be. You never seem the kind of parent to raise children to be themselves and turns around later and asks, Why aren't you more like my dreams? So I am writing this letter to you to ask the things I cannot ask when we sit and face one another from opposite ends of a small kitchen table. I want to know if my duty to the family is done, if it is enough that I become a human being that works and learns. I want to know exactly what I owe you. 
I want to know if bringing home first a man you didn't like and then no man at all, if that will make the medals and plaques and honors mean nothing at all. Dad, I would love to have loved young. If I learn to nobody, love nobody else, I want to learn to love my father. And if I've learned anything yet about love, it's that a grudge can poison all goodness. I'm writing to learn to forgive, to be forgiven. Nothing comes without a fight, not even love. You have just remarkable insight into a father-daughter relationship and how lucky you were able to articulate it for the rest of us. Thank you. You know, you say you can't go home. What yeah. do you mean by that? Do you mean that once you've left, you are forever changed by the very journey that you're on? Precisely. And the journey changes our memory of home so that we develop an expectation of the place we left, a vision of the place we left that doesn't match the one we'll find if and when we do return. So returns are usually a disappointment. Well, Joanna, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. It's been a pleasure to be on this wonderful show. Thank you. Joanna Elotheria is an English professor at Christopher Newport University and the author of This Way Back. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to With Good Reason Radio. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.